It's in Galatians 2, 15 through 21. And we'll finish up with Galatians 2 uh, today. So, again, Paul is writing, and he says this. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, but because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So, Last week, we saw that, you remember we talked about how Peter and Barnabas were eating with the Gentiles, right? And a bunch of Jews came up from Jerusalem, and Peter and Barnabas and some of the other Jews pulled back. Um, They were afraid of the circumcision, afraid what their own people would say, and so they stopped eating with the Gentile Christians. And so Paul, when he saw that, he rebuked Peter. And he basically said, Peter, when you do that, you're compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews. In fact, you're you're telling them if you don't do these things, then you're not fully accepted by God. And to Paul, this was behavior that was out of step with the gospel, out of step with the heart of the gospel. Now, I want to stop and ask a a really simple question. What is, now this is something every Christian should know. What is the heart of the gospel? When you boil it down, what is the heart of the gospel? Okay. Somebody else? What's the heart of the gospel? Just boil it down to me. What is the gospel all about? Um, Jesus was born of the virgin. He died and was on the third day. Okay, that's part of it. Crucifixion and resurrection. Okay. And, and that's, but I want you to boil it. I want you to, t- I'm, I'm a, you're telling me, and, I'm, and I come up to you and I said, man, tell me in one sentence, what is, what is, the, what is the heart of the gospel? What is, all, what is the God? What, by the way, the gospel means what? It's good news. What's the good news? Salvation for all. Well, what does that mean? I would say we're saved from the wrath of God because of sin, and the good news is that Jesus died for us. Okay. It's for everybody. Okay, it's for everybody. Listen, this is the heart of the gospel. Okay, in, in one sentence, okay, make sure you understand this. The heart of the gospel, if the, by the way, gospel means good news. Yes. What's the good news? The good news is that we can be made right with God, justified to use Paul's terms, that you are made right with God, not by works, but by putting your faith in the life and death of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Now, if I walk up to somebody and say, I've got some good news. Good news is you, you can be saved. Yeah, but I mean, give, me, give me more, right? The good news is, is that you don't have to work for it. The good news is all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Okay, that is the heart of the gospel. The Reformers put it this way. When I say the Reformers, I'm talking about 1400s, 1500s, Martin Luther, John Calvin, those guys. 
They said it this way. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, right? We are not saved by works, but it is a gift of God, right? It, it, it's, it's by grace through faith. That's the heart of the God. That's the heart of the good news is that you can't work for it. You don't have to work for it. Just put your faith and trust in the life and death of Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the gospel. Now, the beauty of it is it's so simple, you can put it in one sentence. And in fact, it's so simple that you could explain that to a child and they could understand it. Right? I mean, it's that simple. It's not deep, complicated theology. It's pretty. It's a pretty simple thing. However, it's easy to understand. It can be a real struggle to practice it. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Let's go back in time in our mind to the day of Pentecost. Let's say that you're a Jew and you've lived in Jerusalem your whole life and you're a kosher Jew. That word kosher means that you do everything according to Jewish law, right? So if you buy a kosher hot dog, that means that hot dog was prepared in accordance with Jewish dietary laws. It's beef, not pork. The animal was killed in a certain way, right? That's what a, It means everything was done, it's kosher, it's according to Jewish law. So let's say you're a kosher Jew. You spent your whole life doing this you 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 get up in the morning and it's what does the law say what do the rules say you do everybody with me and let's say it's the day of pentecost and you're walking down the street and all of a sudden these guys come out of this house and they act like they're drunk and they begin to preach and on that day you get saved okay you've been a jew your whole life been doing everything jews are supposed to do and on that day you get gloriously and miraculously saved now here's my question what do you do the next day? Celebrate. Okay, you celebrate, but you get up. What do you eat? You do what you just did. <laughs> you did the day before. You, you, see the, you see what I'm getting to? See, you get up. Do you go to the temple? Well, probably. It's what you've always done. Do you, do you sacrifice? Probably, because you've always done that, right? Do you observe Passover? Probably still do. Do you eat with Gentiles? No. Probably not, because you never did that before. Do you work on the Sabbath? No. no, probably not. Do you take your ritual baths that you probably... You see, you, by the way, you don't have to do any of those anymore. Right? But you don't know that. You, it's the next day. See, it, keep in mind, by the way, there's no New Testament at this point. There's no, you can't open a book and say you don't have to do that anymore. So what we have to understand is from the various earliest, from the very earliest formation of church, there were huge differences of opinion on what you could do or not do. See, don't, we, we look back now and we think, what was wrong with those Jews? Why did they think you had to do, be circumcised? Well, you see, it took, it took years through the, whole, through the revelation to Peter and through revelation to Paul to come up with the New Testament so that we, all the, everybody with me? It, this took time to work through all this. In fact, once the gospel got extended to the Gentiles and Gentiles, man, that just, that threw up, nobody knew. There was, it was mass chaos. Well, now what about, well, they don't have to do that or do they have to do that? 
you can see, what I want you all to see is, is, is the confusion's understandable, right? You just don't get up the next day and all of a sudden you got perfect knowledge. You're going to struggle with all those things you went through. So the question is, you know, what are they to do? Do they keep observing circumcision or do they abandon it? Do they keep observing dietary laws or do they? It took a long time to work through these, um, these, these issues. Now, so the differences of opinion on these issues varied, by the way. So, so you had people all over the place. On one end of the spectrum was Paul, right? And Paul's like, man, you don't need any of that stuff. This is, this is by faith alone, through grace alone, and Jesus alone. That stuff means nothing. So Paul's over here. He's saying, man, just, you can abandon all that. You know, you don't need any of that. At the other end are these Jewish Christians who say, oh, no, no, no. You're, you're a Jew. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey the dietary laws. You've got to keep the feast. So here's Paul, perfect freedom. Here's all these Jewish Christians who are still bound up. And in the middle, by the way, are guys like Peter. You understand Peter still struggled with it? Even though he, on the, on the rooftop in Joppa, he saw the sheep with all the animals, and he, and he, and he, went, to, uh, he went to Cornelius' house, and he says, the Lord showed me that I shouldn't call any man unclean. Remember that? Is he still struggling with that? Yes. How do you know? When he went back to that's, that's right, because when the Jews came, he pulled back. See, he, he wasn't like Paul. He hadn't, he hadn't committed 100% to that. He was still struggling with it, because if he wasn't struggling with it, he wouldn't have pulled back. He might have believed it in his head and his heart, but he hadn't quite committed to it in his, in his life. So, so you had a bunch of them in the middle that... You know, on this day, they were okay with it. This day, maybe not, right? <laughs> kind of back and forth and back and forth. Now, here's my next question. What about today? Do we still struggle with similar issues? Yeah. Like what? Baptized, not baptized, okay. Holy Spirit. Bab baptism. We can't agree on baptism. Some, I, I'm reading a book now at the house. It's called Doctrine That Divides, and it talks about baptism and and you know, we, how to baptize. You know, do you baptize babies? Do you not baptize babies? We, you know, there's denominations all over the place. What else do we struggle with? Gifts of the Spirit. Okay, gifts of the Spirit. It's for today, not for today. Somebody else. What else? What's some issues we struggle with? Come on. What do you struggle with? We're for our salvation. Okay, working. Can you drink alcohol? Can I, can I find one Christian that says it's okay to have a glass of wine? Another Christian said, no, you shouldn't do that. Can I do that? Can I, what about tattoos? Can I find one Christian that says it's okay to have tattoos? Another Christian says, no, you can't do that. What about, what about what you can do on the Sabbath? Do we disagree on that even today? Yes. Okay. If you ask me to go fishing today, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> you ask him to go, he won't go. <laughs> he's bound up. He's, 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 he's bound up in the law. But I'm free. It, yeah, he raised me wrong. <laughs> but the point is, is that we all have, we don't all agree. See, I mean, so you can go through these. Can you smoke? Can you drink alcohol? Can you get tattoos? Can you listen to secular music? Watch secular movies? Read secular books? How do you observe the Sabbath? What, 
what's proper and what's not. We go down through here, there's all kinds of different opinions that we still have today in the Christian church. Now, the reason I bring that up, because it's easy for you and I when we read Galatians to look and say, well, that, that really doesn't apply to me. That was a bunch of Jews and they were struggling with <laughs> circumcision and dietary laws and keeping feast. And that's a, you know, it's an interesting book, but no, man, this is just as relevant today as it was then. The issues may have changed somewhat, but they're still the same issues. We disagree on certain things. In fact, here, here's, the, here's the thing. We can understand the heart of the gospel, but even today we struggle to answer this question, what constitutes a life that is in step with the gospel? That's, a, that's not an easy question to answer, is it? See, we can answer it for us, we feel pretty good about what we do, but we look at, well, they shouldn't be doing that. We do that all the time, guys. We point the finger, they shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be doing that. She shouldn't be doing that. By the way, that was the same things they struggled with. What constitutes a life that's in step with the gospel? Now, many things such as behaviors and habits are not covered specifically in Scripture, right? Right? As such, it's left up to us to make judgment calls. Okay, take, Let's take tattoos just for an instance. Um, it's not covered in Scripture, what you can or can't do. And if you try to go to the Old Testament and quote the Scripture out of the Old Testament and say, don't get tattoos, what I'm going to tell you is if you want to do that, then you better not be eating shrimp and catfish this weekend. <laughs> because if you're going to go to that law and you're going to obey the Old Testament laws then you better not eat shrimp and catfish. That's out the door. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Right? So don't go to the Old Testament and give me that. No, you go to the New Testament. What does the New Testament say about tattoos? And what does it say? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, I've got my convictions about it. I believe what's right and what's wrong and can, what's allowed and what's not allowed. But the point is... It's not covered in Scripture specifically, so it's left up to us to make judgment calls. And by the way, when we make judgment calls, guess what we'll do? We'll disagree. <laughs> Your judgment call and my judgment call may not be the same thing. Okay? So that's why Galatians is so important. Yes? So if it's not, I was thinking if it's not covered, should we fall back to what was already there? No. 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 No, we're under a different covenant. We're under a different system. There are things there, I think, that I, I think it's covered in a sense in some... Well, let's don't go down that road right now, right? In fact, I'm doing exactly what I don't want to do today. See, this is why Galatians is so important. Because it brings us back to the heart of the matter, and that is the heart of the gospel, Right? That's why Galatians is so important is it's got all these periphery issues that we can get so called up in. And Galatians says, no, get back over here and focus on what's important. And what's important is the gospel. Paul drags us back into that. I'm, I'm not a proponent of like, you know, your self-conscious and all that. Because even people who went into the trade center were, you know, their conscience was clear. But there is a conviction that God gives you in the Bible, you know, in James it says to him that knows to do good and does it not to him it's sin. That's right. So if God has convicted you of a certain thing, you obey what God has put on your That's heart right. in accordance with the scripture. You know it's God's word. 
if it's not in there, you know, and you have that, you know, yeah. him that knows my voice will, will not listen to another. So yeah. if you know that you have that conviction, that's for you. That's your obedience that's right. with God. But boy, not to isn't it hard? That's exactly, everyone should have your own convictions. Yeah. And you should live by the, if it's not covered in scripture, then you have a conviction about something. You have a, uh, it, it's something that's important to you. Um, that's, that's ex- by the way, that's biblical. Okay, well, you have your own. Who is to determine that your convictions are right or wrong? They're right for you. Again, if it's not covered in Scripture, if it's not covered in Scripture, then you go into Scripture, you look for principles that cover that, right? Um, you, you look for, you know, you use wisdom along with Scripture to decide what to do. Here's the, here's the tricky part, though. You come to a conviction. Right, you cannot put that conviction on somebody. Don't you? Don't you see? That's exactly what the Jews were doing. They were saying, if you don't do that, you're not a real Christian. If you see, and Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. When you compel people to do things, okay, he's saying that's out of you're. You're saying you're not a real Christian if you don't do this. He said he'll get. Paul would get in your face and say you cannot do that. Yes, we should all have convictions. The tricky part is. Is you, we as human beings, we want to say, well, I'm right. <coughs> and if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. Well, it also says not to offend your brother. So it says that if your brother has a conviction not to eat, then don't eat. That's right. If he has a conviction not to drink, don't drink in his presence. That's right. But we're not supposed to offend each other. We're supposed to lift each other. Well, we're supposed to live in freedom and love, yeah. right? You know, your conviction's not my conviction. So, again, it's, by the way, is it... <coughs> We make our own point. Is it tricky? It was tricky for them. It's tricky, still tricky today for us. I have a, a question, but kind of a comment too about Paul. Um, wasn't he a Pharisee? Mm-hmm. He was so, trained under Pharisees. The right? one person who would fight for the law. Well, should have been the him. One person. Right. Who, I mean, he was sickened by Gentiles. So yeah. obviously, if yeah. he's the one... Now, we said that a few weeks ago. If there's one guy God could have picked that would not preach the gospel of grace, it would have been Paul. He was the one, I mean, he was the one going around killing Christians, right? Right. And he, he was the one guy. God said, let me just find one guy. Oh, there he is. Let's use you. Um, and so absolutely. So anyway, this is the point. What I want y'all to understand, and we, by the way, we could sit here and we could throw up tattoos and we could talk for an hour. I could throw out alcohol. We could talk for an hour. I could throw out the... We could talk for an hour. What you think, what I think. Paul says, get back over here and this is the heart of the matter. That's all periphery. What's important is the heart of the gospel. This is... And that's exactly what Paul is doing here um, today. So Galatians... Yeah, Brian? If you take care of the heart of the matter, then the other stuff... Tends to... Yeah, if we all keep the main... That's what Paul does. Paul says... Keep the main thing, the main thing. Don't separate over these type of things, right? Keep the main thing, the main thing. So Galatians reminds us that these issues that they struggled with and the issues that we struggle with are on the periphery of the gospel. Paul brings it back to the main thing. The issue for Paul, which he would defend with his life, was the essence of the gospel, or the heart of the gospel, and it's just like we said, it, grace, uh, uh, we are saved through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's, what, that's the heart of the gospel. 
not no works anywhere in that um, any anywhere in that equation. So, with that said, I, I just wanted to let you guys understand this is this is why Galatians is so important. It was important then, and it's still important today. So let's come back to our story. Paul's rebuked Peter for what he did by withdrawing fellowship from the Gentiles, and so in our in our passage today is the is Paul's argument. He's continuing to argue why what Peter did was wrong. Okay, so let's. I want to now. This is pretty deep theologically. So so far we've had a lot of. Uh, bi- uh, um, bi- biographical things that, that Paul has talked about, his own life. He's talked about uh, what happened with him and Peter, but now he's going to get down into some theology. So I want to walk through this argument with him. So this is what he says first. He says this in verse 15. He says, we ourselves... Now remember, he's talking to Peter, he's talking to Barnabas, he's talking to other Jews. So he's talking to Jews here. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now... This is important. I brought this up last week, and and I want to go ahead and clarify a term here because this is going to be important as we walk through the passage. And that term is sinners. Now, what you got to understand is Paul does not mean that Gentiles are sinners and Jews are not. That's not, by the way, that would contradict what he says in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned. Everyone has come short of the glorious standard of God. Paul never said that Jews are not sinners. That's not what he's saying. He said, what he says here is we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now what he means by that, so the Jews as a race and as an ethnic people, they took great pride in being the chosen people of God. Okay, And in fact, they regarded all other ethnicities, all other races as being Sinners. Now, the reason they use that term is because the Jews were given the law, right? They were the caretakers of the law. They had the law. Do this. Don't do this. But everybody else didn't have the law, did they? So to the Jews, they were sinners because they didn't have the law. That's what they meant by this term. In other words, Jews, they were kosher. They followed the legal requirements of the Jewish life. Therefore, they were law followers. But the Gentiles... They didn't even have the law. How could they follow what they don't even have, right? So by nature, by their birth, notice what he says, we are Jews by birth, we're law followers. By birth, they don't even have the law. How can they follow it? So in a, in a sense, what we would call, this word sinners here would mean law neglectors, right? They don't have it. It's like if you come into a, a let's say you're not from uh, Sop Choppy and you come into Sop Choppy and there's a law that you can't do something. Everybody in Sop Choppy knows about it, but you don't even know about it. You see, you, you, you know, everybody else follows that law because they know about it. You don't even know it. So you're obviously, you're going to break it because you don't even know it exists. So, so I don't want to call them law breakers because how do you break what you don't even have? They're just law neglectors because they don't even know it, it exists for the, for the most part. Um, so this term Gentile sinners is really a term of Jewish pride. That's what the Jews would say. Oh, we're, they're sinners. We're the law followers because we have the law. So it was a term of, of pride that they used. So when Paul says we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, he's using the language of the Jews that he's talking to. Everybody with me? Remember, he's not talking to Gentiles. He's talking to Jews. And he says, I know how y'all think. Y'all think those guys are all sinners. Now, he's doing this for a reason. And what he's doing is he's setting them up. 
He says, okay, you want to call them sinners? All right, let's do that. And what he's going to do is he's going to turn around in a minute and he's going to tear them down. Say, so I want you to say, everybody with me. So that term sinners, let's read that again. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He means that he and Peter as kosher Jews follow the rigorous legal requirements of the Jewish life. They're law followers. But the Gentiles, on the other hand, they don't have the law. Therefore, by birth, they are what we'll call law neglectors. Everybody with me? Okay, now, that's going to be very important when we get to verse 17 in just a minute. So let's hang on to that. Now, Paul goes on in verse 16. He says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that he and Peter, even as law-following Jews, right? They've got the law. They get up every morning. They try their best to follow every point of the law. He says, even as law-following Jews, we know, we've come to know in our head, we have the knowledge that no one is going to be justified or made right with God on the basis of those efforts to keep laws, okay? So on the contrary, God took the whole thing into his own hands. He, he, he took the bull by the horn, so to speak, sent his son to die for our sins. He saves us without our help at Calvary by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So, that, so Paul is saying, Peter, you and I share this theology, right? We know in our heads that even though we're law-following Jews, nobody, that's not going to save us. We know that. Everybody with me? Now, watch what he says next. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Paul is saying, Peter, not only do you and I share this theology, we share the same faith. In other words, not only do we know it in our head, now it's got into our hearts. We know and we what? Believe. Okay? So we share the same theology and you and I share the same faith. We, we believe this. So Paul's point is this, that Peter, even though we are natural law-keeping Jews and not law-neglectors, okay, still we both have come to stake our lives on Jesus Christ. We have abandoned law-keeping as a means of justification and we have trusted Him. And we've shown that not just with our heads, and how we speak, but we've shown it with our hearts and with our minds and with our hands and with our very lives. We've staked our lives on the fact that works will not get you to heaven. See, that's what he's saying. Even though we're law followers, we've staked our very lives that that law will do us absolutely no good. And we believe that with every fiber of our being. So basically he's saying we have ceased to hope in ourselves or we find no basis of justification there. God did it all on the cross and we believe in that. We trust in Him and not in ourselves. Everybody with me? So that's what, that's what Paul is saying. Now, we come to verse 17, and you need to understand something about Paul to understand where he's going. Because verse 17 can kind of seem out of... It don't, it don't seem really to flow. But you have to understand something about Paul. If you ever wondered how Paul worked when he went into a new place... Because Paul traveled all over, didn't he? He wasn't interested in, in if, if he came into Walkula County, he, he, he might come by here, but he would go to somewhere where there's not a church, and that's where he would start. He's not interested in, he, he wants to build new churches. So when he would go into a town, look at what he would do. There, I'm going to give you a couple examples. Acts 17. Now, when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. 
And Paul went in, as was his custom. So what does that tell us? When Paul went into a new town, what would he do? He'd find the synagogue, which was the Jewish church, and he'd go in. And what would he do? And it says, and on three Sabbath days, that means for three weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. So when he would go into a town, he'd find the Jewish synagogue, and the first thing he'd do is he'd go in there and he'd begin to, <laughs> he'd begin to debate with them. He began to reason. That word reason basically means debate with them. They'd, have, they'd say, no, this can't be. He'd say, yeah, let me show you. Okay? Look at another example. Acts 17, 16 through 18. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was being provoked with them, even as he was observing, as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So here he is in Athens. So when there was Jews in the synagogue, he would go in the synagogue and, and argue with them, right? And then when they left, he'd go into the marketplace and find people there, and just and just start a debate. Okay, so what Paul was constantly engaging people, right? He was just, and notice, Paul didn't just stand on a street corner and preach. It doesn't say that. What does it say? He reasoned with them. That means there was a give and take. There was a back and forth. Everybody with me? Okay, now, I bring all that up because when he went into a city, he basically spent every moment he had reasoning and debating. As such, he had heard every argument that you could possibly make. He had heard every point. People could every question that people would bring up, he had heard it. There wasn't nothing you could bring up that he somebody he hadn't heard. Okay? Let, let me give you a, let me give you an example. As such, because he had heard all these questions, when he would write his letters, he would write something down and he knew the question that pe that would generate from people. So a lot of times what he would do, he would make a point, he'd go ahead and answer the question because he knew the question that would... Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. Look at Romans... You don't have to turn there. Look at Romans 5, 20 through 21. Paul's talking about the law. Watch what he says. The law came in so that the transgression would increase or so that sin would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness. So Paul says the more sin there is, the more grace there is. The more you sin, the more greater God's grace is. So what happened is when he would debate with people in the marketplace, you know what they would say? Let's sin, sin all the more. more. Let's sin all the more then. Hey, let's give God the glory. Right? That's a, Paul had heard that probably a thousand times. What's the next verse? What he says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? You see what he's doing? He's heard that question a thousand times, so he just goes ahead and answers it. May it never be. Some versions say, God forbid, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? That, that's why he says that, because he's heard that a thousand times. He knows what comes into people's minds. Now, I say all that because that's exactly what he's doing here in Galatians. Okay, this is what's going to happen in verse 17. We're hearing the echo of an argument that the Judaizers had probably used against Paul numerous times. They had probably told Paul, Paul, when you encourage Jews not to obey the law, you make them sinners 
and you make Jesus an agent of sin. Everybody with me? He said, and Paul, they, he's heard this a thousand times. He said, they say, Paul, when you, when you encourage people like Peter not to keep the dietary laws or not to be circumcised or whatever the case may be, he's saying you not only make them sinners, you make, them, you make Jesus a servant of sin or an agent of sin. So look at what Paul says in verse 17. He says, but if, remember he's just told Peter, right? Peter, we know works can't save us. We believe, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And watch what he says. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? He says, certainly not. Again, why did he bring this up? Because he's heard this a thousand times. So he's going ahead and asking and answering the question. Now again, it's utterly crucial that we see what Paul is admitting and what he's denying. He's admitting first that he and Peter and other Jewish Christians are seeking justification not in works, but in Christ, right? And he says, okay, if we do that, say we're found, we're found to be sinners. Now again, here's where we have to understand that word from what he said previously. Remember earlier he had said to the Jews, they're Gentile sinners. So he says, if we, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, if we stop obeying Jewish law, we too are found to be sinners. We're just like the Gentiles. Everybody with me? We're law neglectors. Okay, that's what, he's, that's what he's saying there. Again, here's where we have to remember that limited meaning of the word sinners. It means law neglectors. Paul means that when a Jew trusts Christ for salvation, he's free from the Jewish ceremonial regulations and can, if he chooses, neglect dietary laws in order to eat with the Gentiles. Okay? And so the Jewish Pharisees would say, oh, you're a sinner too. Everybody with me? And then Paul says, okay, you're right. We, and if that's, your, if that's your definition for sinners, then we're sinners. We're neglecting the law. Uh, so again, people who live like that are called sinners by the Judaizers. So Paul says, okay, if you're def now this is where, again, remember he's setting them up. If your definition of a sinner is someone who doesn't keep the ceremonial Jewish laws, then yes. We're found to be sinners just like the Gentiles. That's what he's admitting. Everybody with me? Okay, now, he denies emphatically that this makes Christ an agent of sin. He says, certainly that doesn't make Christ an agent of sin. Now, why not? Well, what he's saying is it's not a sin to be a law neglector. Okay? It is not a sin to stop depending on works. That's, that's what he's saying. For me not to keep dietary laws, that's not a sin. Now, that's easy to say, but can Paul back it up? And that's what he's going to do in verses 18 and 19. Now notice the first word in verse 18. He says, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. And then that word for, that word for is a connecting word that connects what he just said with what he's about. It's what we would say because. He's saying, no, he's not an agent of sin. And watch what he says. Because if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Okay, now here's, here's the crux of his argument. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down, what, is, uh, what did Paul tear down? What did he tear down? What did he tear down? Okay, well he didn't tear it down, right? Because it's still there. But what did he tear down in his own life? His 
his commitment to that law, his dependence on that law as a means of justification, right? By the way, we said it earlier, who was the one guy that was committed 110% to the law? It was Paul. Paul said, I tore that down. That, that's what he's tore down. So what's clear, Paul's saying, is he tore down the law as a means of justification, as a means of being made right with God. Now, by the way, just so you know, the law of Moses never taught that a man could be made right with God or a man or woman could be made right with God through the law. Look at Psalms 143.2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Is that Old New Testament or New? Old Testament, it says, how many people are righteous? Nobody. Isaiah 64.6, we, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but... The Old Testament said as much... Do all the righteous deeds you can, and before God it's what? It's filthy. So the law never taught that. It never taught if you do everything, you're going to be made right with God. Now, so what Paul tore down was not the law as God gave it. He tore down as the Jews used it. Now, Paul, I can't jump ahead too far here because Paul is going to detail this later in chapter 3. He's going to talk about the law, and, and, and we're going to have a lot of fun with that. But for now, I want to give you a picture and just kind of help you out a little bit. Let's use the picture of the law as a railroad track, right, which God gave in order to guide Israel's obedience, okay? So, so he gives the law kind of as a railroad track, and he says, follow this railroad track, okay? And it'll lead you where you need to go. Everybody with me, okay? Now, the engine that was supposed to pull the person along the track was still God's grace. It was still the Holy Spirit. Even in the Old Testament, it was ne- he just said, man, all your righteous deeds are filthy. It was supposed to lead them to faith to, so that they would understand, I can't do it, I have to depend on Him. Everybody with me? Um, so the coupling between the car and the engine was still faith. Okay? Even in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, like the New Testament... Salvation was still by grace through faith. That's what he said, Paul said about Abraham. He believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. It was his faith that he counted, not his works. He believed God. So even in the Old Testament, it was supposed to be like a train where, again, the, the, the law was the railroad tracks, God was still the engine pulling people, and the cars were us, and we were coupled to the engine by faith. But now, I want to watch what the, the Jews... By the way, that way of salvation is so uncomplimentary to the human ego that people don't want to hear it. That's why every religion out there is always, man-made religions will always be about works. You have to do this. Christianity is the only religion that says you can't do anything. Give it up. You can't do anything. All man-made religions will always be about works. So the Jews did an amazing thing. They took that railroad track that God had given them They lifted it up on its end, they leaned it up against the door of heaven, and they made it a ladder to climb. Okay? So, this, and by the way, that's the essence of legalism. You make the law into a long list of steps that you climb to get to heaven. Okay? So God says it's a railroad track. It guides you along the right way. They take it and make it a ladder that you climb to get to heaven. God destroyed the Tower of Babel, which yep. was trying to get things. Yep. Okay, so everybody, everybody with me right here? Now, 
This ladder is what Paul tore down. Paul says, he says, I, I'm not going to use the law like that anymore. And watch what he says in verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, if I rebuild that legalistic ladder, that legalism, now watch what he says, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is a transgressor? A sinner. See, he's saying if I rebuild that ladder, if I once again try to make laws and rules and regulations the way to gain God's favor, then what I do is I prove myself to be a sinner in the true sense of the word. You're using sinner just because I don't obey some laws. What I'm telling you is to be a, real, a true sinner is one who tries to take those laws and get to heaven through them. Then you prove yourself to be a real sinner. Um, in my mind, I kind of visualize it between a car and an airplane. A car you know, has to stop and has to turn for the turn signals on all that stuff. But you can get to the same place driving a car, but when you become a Christian, you soar you know, on the wings of eagles. So you become the airplane. While you still go over the roads, you don't follow the laws of the roads. That's right. And you have no restrictions. And as a car, inevitably, we're going to speed. We're not going to stop completely. We're not going to turn our blinker on. But as you both have that engine that has to drive you to get somewhere, but in a car, you're going to break the law. As the airplane, you're going to get there without ever breaking the law because the law doesn't apply to you. Yep. You become a new creature. That's good. I, let's, let's read this again. Watch what he says. Let's put those two verses together. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. This is the connection between verse 18 and 17. Paul's saying this, when Christ leads us to trust him for justification instead of trusting our own climbing, right? He is not an agent of sin for what really makes a person a true sinner is not the neglect of the ceremonial statutes but the prostitution of the law of God which turns it from a railroad track of grace into a ladder of works. The real sin against God is to presume that you can climb your way up a ladder of morality in order to gain his favor. That's what he's saying. So you call them sinners? No, you're the sinner. You're prostituting the law of God. So he, he set it up to, t to turn it around and, and, and put it right back uh, on them. So, by the way, Paul says in verse 19, and this is probably as far as we'll get today, you must take this to its logical conclusion, right? For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So what Paul's saying here, if you want to live to God, you must die to the law. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. That's what he's telling Peter. Peter, make up your mind. It's either the law or it's God. It cannot be both. They have nothing to do with one another. You are either going to get to God through grace and faith and trust, or you're not going to get to Him at all. It is a complete... These, these two things are anathema to one another. They're, they're like magnets. They repel one another. It's either law and works and climbing, or it's grace and faith and trust in, in Jesus uh, Christ. By the way, we said this earlier. Paul had made every attempt in his life to find meaning and righteousness through the Jewish law. But he understood such performance. When you're trying to perform, let me tell you what it will do. It will leave you exhausted. Because every day you never do enough and you never do it perfect enough. Yes or no? You never do enough and you never do it perfect enough. That's why Paul says the law will kill you. Trying to get to him by being a good person, by working for it. Uh, it's, it the law is inadequate, it's impotent, it's powerless to produce anything good inside of you. 
Yeah, it just basically all it does is a flashlight that shines on you and shows you how bad you are. That's that's what Paul said in Romans five. The law came so that transgression you could look and say, "Wow, what's wrong with me?" It's really what it was. It was a it was a cubing that shined into your your life. Verse nineteen makes the amazing point that as long as you are trying to earn your way to God by works of the law, you cannot have a relationship with God. The closer you try to get to God by works, the further you drive Him from you. There are only two possibilities in religion. You think of God's demands, your ability and the ladder of law, or you can think of God's demands, your inability and the gift of justification by faith. Those are your two options. By the way, this is Christianity. This is religion. This is Christianity. You, you, you understand God demands perfection. God demands righteousness. How do I... You look at yourself and say, well, I'm lost. I put my faith in you, Jesus. Or you look at God's demands and say, okay, I just got to be better tomorrow. And by the way, you fail and you fail and you fail and you fail. This must be the experience of every Christian. The old self that loves to boast in its ability to climb ladders must die. You are to die to the law by abandoning the ladder, live to God by trusting His grace. I, I, I was reading a book this week and uh, came across this story, and I thought it was such a great story. Um, it was a man walking along a cliff, and uh, when he, he slipped and fell over the side, and at the bottom was these sharp rocks, and as he's, as he's hurtling down, he reaches out and grabs this, uh, uh, this limb or this branch that's jutting out of the rock. And he's just, he's sitting there and he's holding on to it and he's looking down and he sees the rocks. I mean, he's in dire straits. And as he's sitting there, an angel appears before him. And this angel is just strong and, and just, you know, just angel. And, and the angel says to him, do you believe I can save you? And the guy looks at the angel and he looks at how big he is and how strong he is. And, and the guy says, well, yeah, absolutely I believe that you can save me. And then the angel says... Do you believe I will save you? That I will do it? And the guy looks at the angel and he sees a smile on his face and he sees uh, just the goodness emanating out from him. And he says, yeah, I believe you will save me. So the angel looks at him and says, if you believe I can save you and I believe, uh, and you believe I will save you, then let go. And that really hit me. You see, that's what God says to us. Do you believe I can save you? Yeah. Do you believe I will save you? Yeah. Then quit. Quit working. Stop all that. Just trust in me. Let go. You know, we, we use an analogy sometimes I used to use with the kids about a chair. You know, I can look at that chair and say, do you believe that chair will hold you up? Yeah. Do you believe it's strong enough? Do you believe all? Yeah. But until you actually sit in it, you're not putting your, you can believe all that in your mind. But until you actually sit down and prove that, yeah, I, I, I put my trust in that chair. Everybody with me? Kind of what the angel said, let go. Let go. See, that's faith. Abandoning your works. Abandoning the ladder. Abandoning trying to earn God's favor. And just let go and put your faith in the, in the cross. Sometimes that's not easy to do, is it? Everything in us says, you got to do it. you got to be better. you got to be good. You've got to earn His favor. By the way, we've talked about this a million times. That comes a lot from our upbringing as, as children and parents. You earn your, you know, you know, you learn as a very young child. Boy, when I do good, 
they love me more. It seems they do, doesn't it? Because they reward you, they give you gifts, and when you're bad, they beat the mess out of you, and they just, it's like, I gotta be good, right? We train children to earn favor. You go to school, you do good, you get good grades. You do bad, you're digging ditches for a living. We don't, we don't reward failure. So everything in us says, do it, do it, do it. And everything in Christianity says, you better stop that. You better stop it. You better just let go and, and trust in me. That's faith. That's grace. That's what Jesus does. And that's a, for some of us, that is in, it's terrifying. Just to say, I'm not going to try anymore. You know, that's why it's just the, the, the Bible's so beautiful. It's, that's when you're your weakest, and that's when you're your strongest. You know? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, Galatians. <clears throat> we thank you.